I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, welcome. I'm going to give you guys some uh, biblical principles today to help deal with depression and sadness. And I, I don't want to overstate what I'm doing here, but I do think this will actually give you practical tips to help you with the topic of depression or sadness. You know, basically when you're down, when you're going through things and you're down. Um, one thing that can help with depression and sadness, before I get started though, is having a pet cat who's made entirely of large amounts of hair. This is Moxie. There's the cat cam. She's having a good old time today, so I just wanted to, <laughs> just wanted to show you guys her. Yeah, she's a good cat. Anyhow, here we go. All right. Um, I want to uh, just say first, welcome. Uh, I'm uh, Mike Winger, a pastor, and I do videos on theology and apologetics here online. I spend a lot of time preparing and producing content to help people learn to think biblically about everything. If that excites you, uh, learning what the, what Christian truth is and then how to defend it as well, then you probably want to subscribe and start following the content. It's all free, 100% free. It's just there to bless and edify, build you up, lead you, hopefully lead you to Christ and get you strong in Christ. And so... Um, so yeah, now I want to also offer a disclaimer for today. I am not here to diagnose your depression. And I do not think there is a one-size-fits-all issue when it comes to going, and I'm not even talking about clinical depression or anything. I'm not even interested in that, to be honest. Um, you may have that. You may not have that technically. I'm certainly not in a, a place where I can even diagnose something like that and tell you what you've got. Rather, I want to give you tools to help you if you're down. That's what this video is all about. I'm going to give you a set of tools. You may, perhaps there's some chemical imbalance. Well, I wouldn't know, and I wouldn't know what to do to fix it for you. I'm not even commenting on that kind of stuff. What I'm talking about is the fact that you still have choices and that it can it can affect you. Um, the decisions you make can impact your life in positive ways, and it can help you as you deal with depression, as you deal with sadness and times of sorrow, prolonged times of sorrow even. This may give you some tools to help. This will not be the fix. This will be aid. This will be hopefully help. So hopefully you'll listen with that uh, in mind. I hope I didn't miss some kind of important disclaimer that I should have offered there, but I want to get right into it here today. And then we'll go to your questions at the end of the stream. And you can put your questions in the live chat right now. Just put like a Q there, a little capital Q, so that we know that that's a question and we can gather some of those. We will only be able to gather a smattering of all the questions that come in because too many come in, but we'll give you, we'll get to as many as I can. Uh, the first thing I want to say about depression, and I'm, I'm going to go to scripture because that's what this is about. This is about thinking biblically about this topic and hopefully providing some hope and some help. Um, I want to look at Psalm 42, and I'm looking at Psalm 42 to tell you this. You have choices to make, even though you are not the one controlling how you feel, you still have decisions to make. And this is good, good news because sometimes you feel like you're trapped. You feel like that there's nothing you can do about it. Well, you still have choices. Psalm 42, let me share with you. And by the way, the book of Psalms is like your book. If you're processing through the hardship of life and you want to know how to bring that to God in prayer, the book of Psalms is your blueprint. And it is more gritty, but also more helpful than most people realize. And we're going to get into some of that tonight. Um, so here's what it says in Psalm 42. It says, To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? Can you feel the despair in Psalm 42 in the psalmist, right? You feel the despair that's going on here. Now, verse four goes on. So he says, when I remember these things, 
I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. He's like, the, the good days are gone. Life is not good right now. It's hard. And then verse 5 blows my mind because we identify in principle with the things he's going through there because we're humans too. But in verse 5, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. This is to me clear. It's, do not miss this. Please don't miss this. This is balm and this is help for hard times. There's a conversation the psalmist has first with God. He talks to God. Then he stops and talks to himself. And he asks his soul a question as though he's standing up, uh, uh, separate from himself, looking at himself. And he's like, why are you so cast down? Now, he knows why he's cast down. He has plenty of good reasons to be cast down. But he's going to confront himself. And then he gives himself a command. Soul, you are going to hope in God. You are yet that means still, in this situation, in this dark, uh, dark difficult time, you are still going to praise God. This is a, a self-command and a choice. And here's my point. You have choices, as the psalmist did. Why are you disquieted? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. I think that this is like a stern power of the will decision to choose to trust God and to express that hope in God with acts of worship. And I think worship is one of the things in our arsenal that we, we can have when we're going through really hard times. A uh, worshiping God by faith, not by feeling, because the feeling's not even there, but simply choosing to trust God and to praise God in the middle of those hard times is a good choice you can make when you're in the middle of depression. This is one of the tools that I think we need to have in our tool set of dealing with hard times. As he goes on in verse six, oh God, oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. I will remember you. Life is bad, so I will remember God. Situations are terrible, so I will reflect on the character and the goodness and the person of God. So in other words, theology will be something he's going to choose. It doesn't mean it's a perfect rescue. Oh, I'm going to feel perfectly fine now. That's, and, and that's we can't have that kind of two-dimensional look on these things. But rather, we're looking at a direction of help, right? theology this is this is this is one of the things we need the truth about who god is that we can hold on to and we can meditate on and we can remember or call to our minds god you are good god you are holy god you are just god you are in control you are sovereign and you are a god who cares about me and these are th profound deep truths that you sort of have to choose choose to trust while you're in those dark hard times Again, it won't just make you feel perfectly better. I'll come back to feeling better in a minute. But it's a good choice to make in the middle of depressing times. It's a choice you can make. And the examples here in the Psalms. Um, and he goes on. Um, I'll just read straight through. He says, um, yeah, deep calls unto deep of the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Uh, worship songs constantly use this phrase, deep, your deep calls to deep, as though it's like the depth of the heart of God calling to the depth of the heart of man. I think more accurately what this verse is actually talking about is trials, um, that one wave of trial comes and another wave of trial comes. And I think that that's actually what it probably is talking about. Um, though I understand what worship songs are getting at when they say that. Uh, but then he says in verse 8, O Lord... The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. 
his loving kindness in the day at night his song will be with me this like sort of the song of god is with me in the middle of the night it's a prayer to the god of my life that's the i i don't think any bible study will exhaust that of its deep meaning i just encourage you to soak up verse eight i will say to god my rock why have you forgotten me why do i go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy as with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Then he says again to his soul a second time, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. He's telling himself to hope in God for I shall yet praise him the help of, um, the help of my countenance and my God. The point here, you have choices even though you're feeling depressed and you may not, you may not feel like you have choices. I'm, I think that you still do they're not easy and they're not quick fixes, but they are choices and there are good choices to make at those times when you're feeling really down. And that, that's significant. Um, there, is, there are some who think, well, you know, they think basically I have depression and, or I'm, I'm really sad. And I'm not, again, I'm not talking about clinical, I'm just talking about people who are down. They're just really down. And they feel like they're, 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 their feelings of downness are sort of unrelated to anything that happens in life. And no matter what they do, they'll still be at the same level of being down. And that there, there may be an element of truth to that. There may be something, something sitting upon you that won't budge. But that doesn't mean that there can't be any variation in it. And I think you know that there can be as well. And so I'm going to say it's not healthy for us to think no matter what I do, I'll still feel the same way. Because then we give up on even trying. And so um, I remember going to the doctor one time and I had a uh, chronic indigestion for years. Um, and I got to the point where I felt this way. I thought, you know, it doesn't matter what I eat. I'm going to have indigestion no matter what. And, you know, that wasn't really true, but I did. I honestly thought about it, thought it at the time. And one time I talked to a doctor and he didn't, without me even saying it, he goes, some people just think they'll have indigestion no matter what. Like, it doesn't matter if they if they eat spicy food right before bed. That's not going to affect them. Of course it'll affect them. You know, they might be indigestion prone, but some things will still make it worse. And that was, you know, my situation. I still had to recognize maybe I'm prone to it, but some things make it worse. And so you need to be aware that there are ways you can affect yourself through the decisions that you're making. And that's all you can control. And all you can focus on is what you can actually control. Since you can't control your proclivities, you can just control your environment uh, to some extent and your actions and your thoughts to some extent. So let's look at four, uh, Philippians 4, 6, where I think the scripture talks about our thought life, processing thoughts, processing ideas. And I, I, I've been praying, you know, that this, this video will help you. I want to let you know, you know, don't consider this like, again, like a one size fits all thing, but rather think, think of the video like this as you're watching. Are there any tools I can get out of what Mike is saying that will help me? I don't care if you think some of the stuff I say is wrong or, or it doesn't help you. Then just set it aside. Just be like, meh, I spit that out, Mike. That part didn't help me at all. I just want you to consider this a resource. Gather whatever you can from this video, any piece of it that might help you, and let that bless you and help you. That's, that's my heart. That's my goal here. I'm not trying to act like I'm the arbiter of truth when it comes to sorrow. Because I'm certainly not. don't have all the answers. But I think there may be some help I can point to in the word of God for your situation. So Philippians 4 verse 6, it says, be anxious for nothing, um, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now this verse, be anxious for nothing, I, I think that we're probably misunderstanding it if we think it means y'all can never have anxiety. Like if you're Christian, you simply won't have any anxiety. Um, 
that's not true, nor is it true that you can simply flip a switch and turn anxiety off. I don't think that's what it means by be anxious for nothing. But I do think it means don't just plain old be anxious. Don't just sit there and be anxious. Rather, there are some steps to take when you feel anxiety. And that that's where I would go with this passage. When you feel anxious, that is a trigger to tell you to do what is in Philippians 4, verse 6, and, and the following. So when you're feeling anxious, right, what you should do is, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That prayer needs to be a part of your experience of dealing with, with anxiety or, or sadness or depression. Prayer needs to be involved here. Um, prayer Again, prayer is not like a quick fix. And if you think of it as a quick fix, you will be constantly disappointed with prayer to the point where you stop doing it because you wanted it to fix things when it was just a positive thing to do, not a quick fix. Uh, you need to keep it on that list of, of uh, tools that you have. So be anxious for nothing, right? But everything with prayer and supplication, prayer and supplication. So I'm going to bring it to God. I'm going to talk to God about my issues, and I'll talk a little more about this in a minute. But I want to get this key phrase in here, with thanksgiving. It's the only qualifier about prayer. Prayer and supplication, asking God, you know, telling God about things, prayer, and asking God for things, supplication. I'm going to tell God how it is, and I'm going to ask him for the things I'm hoping for, for his help, for, for him to fix stuff, all that kind of stuff. I'll bring that to God. But there's one qualifier. You better be thankful. Why does Paul have to tell us, why does the Holy Spirit inspire Paul, that the instruction of prayer to the person who's anxious is don't forget to be thankful? Well, I think that there's wisdom here because when I'm anxious, the last thing I am is thankful. It's just, I mean, I'm telling you from personal experience, I'm just not as thankful when I'm feeling anxiety. And when I try to be thankful, I feel as though it fights against my anxiousness. And as, as anxious as I am, I don't want to be thankful. And as thankful as I am, I tend to be a little less anxious. If not totally less, at least somewhat. There seems to be some kind of correspondence there in my own practical life. So be thankful. This is essential that you stop and thank God. So right now, maybe you're feeling really down right now. And if you're watching this video, I would encourage you to like literally pause the video and just stop and get and just start thanking God. Thank God for anything you can think of, for your salvation. Thank God for your your um your just the forgiveness of your sins for the future you have in Christ for how God has helped you in the past for the hope that you have in the future um, for God's sovereignty over the world for him working things together for good for his word that has comforted you at times just start thanking God for anything you can be thankful be thankful for the fact that cheeseburgers taste really good you know be, just be thankful for anything you can think of pause the video and then come back and keep watching um Okay, so let's just assume that you, you went and did that. Um, th this should be like a regular thing as you're feeling anxiety. Give that list of anxieties to God, but make sure to be thankful. If you haven't been thankful, you haven't you know, fulfilled the, the, uh, the desire of the Holy Spirit for us here. Um, I actually think there's another scripture that really ties into this, and you can try this as well. This is like an actual practice you can do, something you can do with your time if you're feeling really full of anxiety. And it's in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 can be kind of a tool in our tool set for dealing with anxiety. Let me let me read it and let's take it like it's actual instruction to us rather than just a memory of what someone did. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now let me pause right now and remember the psalmist before he was commanding his soul, you're going to hope in God, you're going to praise God. And the, the context was whether you like it or not. And that sort of choice to choose by faith to praise God, which I think glorifies God very much. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's a good thing. 
Um, well, now he's like telling his soul again, you're going to bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, you're going to you're going to you're going to bless his holy name. And in verse two, he says, and forget not all his benefits. And that is huge. This connects to Philippians, right? Be thankful. He goes, yeah, but don't forget his benefits. Don't forget the good things that come to you through God. And then in, in this Psalm of David, Psalm 103, it literally gives a list of the benefits of God. And we can learn from this because we can make our own list either written down or just verbally in prayer, you can start listing things you are thankful for. So he gives a list. God forgives all of our all of your iniquities. Is that not a big deal? Forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. And you might think, Mike, I still have diseases I'm not healed of yet. But by the because of the cross, the healing's been purchased already. And there is a future time when you will receive your uncorrupted, incorrupted, incorruptible body, First Corinthians 15, right? And you're going to be living for all eternity in the glory of God. So in a sense, God's already got the healing for you. You just haven't stepped into it yet because it comes, the ultimate final healing comes at the resurrection. So this is a very real truth for you. Even though right now you may have a disease, you can rejoice in its ultimate healing already bought at the cross. Verse 4 says, he redeems your life from destruction. He redeems you. There's a redemption. So you can think of the cross and what he paid to bring you back and be thankful for Christ who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And oh, what a beautiful phrase that God, God loves me. He crowns me with his loving kindness. And that's hesed in the Hebrew. It's God's faithful love. We don't even have an English word to translate all the depth of the meaning of that Hebrew word, the way it's used in the Old Testament. God's faithful, consistent, long-suffering love towards us. He crowns us with it. Wow. I... Anyway, it is, it is a beautiful thing, and you remind yourself of these things, and they, it doesn't fix all your problems. It helps, though. That's the point. So he crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Tender mercies. His, not just mercy, but tender mercies. So, and you can just go on and make your list and meditate on these things. Ponder these things. Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And it goes on. He just keeps giving more reasons to praise God. He executes righteousness and justice for the oppressed. He makes his, known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Read Psalm 103 and, and make a list and underline and think of all of the different things that are going on here. After reading through and these different elements of reasons to thank God and praise God, then he you know, gives this exhortation in verse 20, bless the Lord, you, his angels. He tells the angels to, to praise God who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you, his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. And then finally he concludes with the whole point of the Psalm. Bless the Lord, my soul. My soul needs to bless God. This Psalm is someone in a sense, talking themselves into praising God potentially during a very hard time. And so I think it's a tool in your tool set. Psalm 103, you can make your own list of reasons to bless God and praise God and command your soul to do so. Um, worship is, is, is something that's done by faith. It's not always something that's done by feeling. And in fact, it's frequently not done by feeling. Sometimes it's done in spite of feelings. And it's a beautiful and glorious thing. Um, one of my mods is sending me a text real quick. Um, hmm. Because my... my my microphone volume seems low. I'm, I'm going to turn it up some. Sorry. If, if you're listening to the audio, that should help. Okay. All right. So I hope that helps. Uh, increase the audio. I'm, yeah. All right. There we go. We'll move forward. Um, okay. Back to the Philippians passage. Now, I'm going to give you guys other tips that are unrelated to this kind of stuff. I'm going to move through some very different kind of concepts. But I want to 
start with the thought life and specifically how we handle it in prayer and in commanding ourselves to praise God. And in Philippians, not only do we get that be anxious, but pray with, uh, don't be anxious, but, uh, but pray with thankfulness. But we also get the phrase in verse seven, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God's peace passes understanding. It guards your hearts and minds. I love that phrase, guard your hearts and minds. It doesn't say that his peace means you won't feel any turmoil of any kind, but rather here's you going through hardship and you, and you, you could go down into the depths, but instead you have his peace guarding you. So you don't go that low. In fact, sometimes I think of Christian joy as being like this. Um, life is like a roller coaster going up and down. Sometimes I've, I've had really high times. Things are fantastic. And I'm just like, life is so good. feels like everything's right in the world. Really just a lot of good things are right in your life. And, and you have these high times, but then other times you're very, very low, either because of specific events are going on, or perhaps you don't even know why you're low, right? You're just low. I feel like what Christian hope does is it puts a limiter on how low you can go. Th- that's how I feel like it operates in my life. Like, like I, I go low, but, but I'm thinking, boy, if I didn't have hope in Christ, I would go way lower. And that's kind of the impact, the, the feeling that I have, like the, my joy in the Lord isn't this ecstatic, outward, exuberant joy. It's more like a limiter to how low my heart goes at hard times. And I can imagine how, what would happen if I didn't have this hope I have in Christ. So his, his peace guards your hearts and minds. It's a guard to you. It's a protection to you so that you don't go certain places. And that's, that's the idea achieved with prayer and thanksgiving. Um, Then it goes on and tells us about our thought life more. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Here's what your thought life should be about. You should be thinking about these things. This is huge help to us when we're going through tough times. We need to stop and ask ourselves, what have I been thinking about? Typically, when I have anxiety, I'm thinking about what is uncertain, what is fearful, what is concerning to me. And I, I'm not sure how to, to never think about that stuff. I don't know if I can you know, completely stop thinking about those things. But when I think about that stuff to the exclusion of positive things, things that are true and noble and just and good and kind and lovely and of good report, when, I, when I'm not thinking of those things, it creates, um, it creates other problems. Okay, I'm, I'm getting more feedback. We were troubleshooting this buzz in my microphone, so forgive the interruption. And I'm told the mic buzz is back. There's got to be some balance between how loud the mic is and how much it creates that buzz. So we're working on it. So forgive me here. I'm still uh, trying to make this as professional as I can for you guys. And um, anyway, you get it. So um, I've actually sat down and made a list. And I, I've sat down with this section Philippians when I was feeling a great deal of anxiety and I a uh, great deal of anxiety and I sat down and I made a list of things that are you know I wrote something that's noble and I I just thought of something that's noble and I and I literally just stopped and thought about it for a few minutes and meditated on it then I thought of something that was just and meditated on it and something that was pure and I meditated on it something that was lovely and I meditated on it and so I just think of something in each of these categories for a few minutes each. And that was like a nice stopgap for where my anxiety was at. It, it, it helped me. It was a tool in my toolbox. It helped. I drew it from scripture and I found it to be something useful. Now, some people talk about in prayer, um, just give, just giving it to God as it is like just giving it to God 
in your in your face kind of God. And um, um, they talk about expressing even anger towards God. And I and I do think that we should in prayer be very honest and open with God. But I want to give us a little bit of caution. And that is when you've got feelings of bitterness or anger and they may be directed towards God because you feel like God should fix or could fix things and make them better, help in some way, and you feel like he's not. I want to say that this is um, this is potentially dangerous. So on one end, you should express your genuine feelings towards God. But on the other end, you don't want to get in the flesh toward God. That is not positive. This isn't a healthy thing. Although I've heard lots of guys say that it is. I personally disagree. And I like to explain where there could be maybe a, a middle ground. I don't just become tight-lipped and stop expressing my heart to God. Nor do I get in the flesh and express anger at God in an ungodly fashion. I want to do what I see in the book of Psalms. So look at Psalm 13 as like an example of what to do. Psalm 13, it it might start looking like he's expressing anger. He says, uh, to the chief musician of Psalm of David, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Okay, so now if I stop the psalm there, it does look like he just vented at God, or at least it could be construed that way. And there is a sense of openness, right, where he's just expressing everything he feels to God. There's kind of that sense. But the psalm's not over yet. And you'll see this consistently in the psalms. Look at how it ends. At the end of the psalm, he says, But I've trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Often the psalms do this. Step one, express the sorrow and and hardship of my heart. Step two, make a firm choice to trust in the goodness of God. Don't forget step two. If your prayer during anxiety Forget step two, where you make a firm choice to trust in the goodness and sovereignty and help of God. If you forget that step, then you will um, you will not be okay, is my prediction. <laughs> Things are not going to work out as well. So always, you know, pour your heart out. Be completely open with God, but make sure to have that firm choice to trust in God. Because that's the model in the book of Psalms, which I think is in so many ways my model for how I pray through hard times. That's my counsel to you. I, I hope that it's helpful. Um, along with all this, you know, from Psalm 42, Philippians 4 to Psalm 103, Psalm 13, there's this concept that I want to encourage you with. And this is the idea of evaluating your thoughts, evaluating your thoughts. See, part of the prayer was the expression of just what's really going on in my heart. And we get this in, say, Psalm 62, 8 is actually one of my favorite verses. It says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So this phrase, pour out your heart before him, I've meditated on this. Like, what does it mean to pour my heart out before God? And I think that that means part of my act of trusting is just giving God, here's everything I'm going through. Here's all the hardship. Here's the complaints. Here's the the difficulty. And I'm just going to give it to God. And so you should do that. But I want to ask you, don't be brutally honest with God be totally transparent with God. And there is a big difference, at least in my mind, between these two things. Let me explain. Brutal honesty tends to focus on the brutal part. Total transparency 
tends to open you up to insecurities. And sometimes I want to hide my insecurities with my anger. But I think when you come in prayer to God, you ought to come with your insecurities wide open. And you have insecurities, by the way, (laughs) as do I, as does everybody. We all, in many ways, have lots of insecurities. At least most people, average people do, have a lot of, plenty of insecurities. And these are things to bring to God openly. Because anger can be a mask that holds us into a pla- in a place of pride and keeps us from being open about our insecurities. And then we have a hard time evaluating ourselves or evaluating our situation because we're viewing it through the eyes of anger and bitterness instead of the eyes of clarity that we get through complete transparency. So transparency in prayer but also transparency in your evaluation of yourself. Um, And this is where I'm going to suggest something that I I don't know how much scripture I have to to give you to support what I'm about to tell you. I don't think there's any verses against it. I just think I found it to be a useful thing. And that is the very transparent self-evaluation of your thought life. Um, To stop when you feel anxious, when you feel sad, when you feel sorrowful, and ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? And if, you know, this will help just a certain segment of the audience here. When I feel anxiety, it's not immediately transparent to me why I'm feeling it. And so I have to stop sometimes and ask myself, why am I feeling this way? And, and try to think what triggered it. Well, okay, well, that event or this thing or I saw, saw this or, you know, was thinking about this, um, heard this news. And then I have to ask myself, why did that thing trigger my anxiety? And as I start to really very honestly and transparently give, get to the bottom, to the root of what's causing these things, it then informs my prayer life and I can ask, how do I deal with this? So I, would, I even wrote it out I remember at one point, writing it out, like, what caused me anxiety just now? I want to think about this. So I wrote out the things I thought caused me anxiety. Sometimes I would, I would, I would backspace, I'd delete it and go, no, no, that wasn't it. No, I think it was more of this. And I'd start to understand myself better. But then beneath that, because I would write it out like a Word document, then beneath that, I wrote it out, um, okay, well, what's the right response to this? And oftentimes, there was no response that would fix the problem, but there was a right posture to take as a Christian. There was a right attitude to have. You know, there was some sort of positive attitude to have. Sometimes there were actions to take. There were, oh, if I do this, this will help address this issue. So I would physically go do the thing or take care of it. Um, other times, it was just an attitude of posture, an attitude in prayer, whatever it was. And I would look for the solution. And that personally, I found that to help. I found that to help. Um, there's something that also helps, in, in, and that is not just prayer, but also worship and being in the presence of God. This is what we get in Psalm 73. I don't have enough time in the stream to go over all of Psalm 73. I literally have a whole video on Psalm 73, and you're welcome to find that. So I'm just going to give you the quick synopsis of Psalm 73. Psalm 73, he's like, God's good. I, I'm telling you right now, God's good, but I almost failed. I was, I was like this close to backsliding. I thought... When I saw how wicked things were and how God wasn't fixing it, I thought, what's the point? What's the point of trusting in God? What's the point of of all this? And so he goes through his explanation of why he felt that way in the psalm. And then when did it change? When did it change? It changed when, um, well, let me tell you how bad it was. He goes, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. He couldn't even think about how to reconcile his understanding of who God was with what was going on in the world around him. And then in verse 17, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. He's speaking of the, the, the wicked people prospering and doing wicked things. And he's like, then I saw their end. I realized that God put them in slippery places. And um, it was when he went into the sanctuary of God, meaning that this great revelation of truth came when he just went to worship God. 
there's something spiritually renewing that happens as we worship God. And just think about it. Do you think this guy felt like going into worship when he was feeling this way? Of course not. He wasn't like, boy, I can't wait to worship. Now, he obviously went into the sanctuary of God as an act of simple spiritual obedience to God. He's going to keep, in modern times, we would say going to church kind of thing, or drawing near to God is the idea. Anyway, then he's got this great revelation. He realizes what a dummy he was in the past. Um, that's kind of how it puts it. And his conclusion at the very end is, it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And he's, his faith is restored, his confidence is restored, and a sense of peace is restored. Now, of course, that's like ideal scenario. I don't know how often that exactly is going to happen. But what I will say is that this gives us some tools in our tool chest. Gain a better perspective through worship, prayer. These are real things. Um, this isn't just, um, you need to read the Bible and pray more. <laughs> I mean, people rip on this counsel, read the Bible and pray, um, when actually it's good counsel. As long as you don't, you don't do it in a cheesy fashion. <laughs> Right? Yes, Mika agrees. Let's check the cat cam before I jump on to the next point, huh? So we have two cats. There we go. What is it? You want to be on the microphone? This is awkward. You know, they really just want food. That's really what's going on here. Um, there we go. All right, so evaluate your, your thoughts. Be transparent, not brutally honest. Be very transparent with yourself and with the Lord. Maybe write things down to have a better evaluation of your own self. Then you can try to think biblically about your situation. Think positively about it. Um, maybe be worshiping prayer. Reading the Bible is a good thing. Um, let's see. I want to talk just briefly about Elijah. You guys may be familiar with Elijah. He um, long story short, he, he's, he's an example of someone who feels kind of depressed, seemed very depressed in the scriptures. And one of the things we learned from his story is that he had an incorrect perception of what was going on around him. He correctly saw that Israel was apostate. He correctly saw that they were turning against him and that he had been rejected as a messenger of God. And this totally bummed him out. He incorrectly thought that God seemingly had no plan for the future. Or that, and, and he incorrectly thought that nobody else was serving God, that, that it was, it was doom and gloom. Yes, it was, but it wasn't as doomy and gloomy as he thought it was because there were just things he didn't know. And that was my point with Elijah is that sometimes we have, we ha we correctly see problems around us, but we incorrectly think that that's all there is. And so we fail to have a place of hope in our lives. And scripture helps us here because it gives us a more optimistic view of life. I mean, Christianity is optimistic at its core. I used to be a realist, by which I would say realist, but what I really meant was pessimist. Um, but as I grew in Christ, as I studied the word more, I became more of an optimist, even in the face, at least theoretically, in the face of the worst possible situations, to still have some sense of optimism because of the hope of eternity and because of God's ultimate use, using of everything that's going on. So Romans 8.28 comes to mind here. Um, but as Christians, we need to remember the future is better than the present. And hope is a future-related term. And hope is the thing connected to our joy that gets us through rough times. So let me give you an example of this in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 31. Psalm 31. And I hope you'll stick with me because I have a couple tools I haven't even brought up yet that are very, very important. Um, I just have to do things in order. So I will get there. Hoping you're sticking around. Psalm 31 says to the chief musician of Psalm of David, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. 
Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be, be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they've secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Notice how there's like this, you've already redeemed me, even though he's praying that he will do these things. He's like, God, you are my rock and fortress. You are my redeemer. But will you help me, though? These, these types of things. Um, he says, I've hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I'm in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. My eye wastes away with grief. You can feel the, the, the pain and the suffering. Maybe you identify with it that he's going through. Maybe you can find some help in how he found help. So yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. And I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors. I am repulsive and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I'm forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Wow, that is powerful. Can you say that? Can you say verse 14 and 15? As for me, Lord, I trust in you. You're my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I've called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you've laid up for those who fear you, which you've prepared for those who trust in you. Notice that the psalmist thinks there's this goodness laid up or stored up, this delayed thing that's going to happen, and that's what he's hoping in. It's a future hope, right? This is what you need, a future hope. Um, which you've prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of many. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from strife, from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before your eyes. This is so me and you, right? I feel like it's all over, Lord. And he's like, I said this, but it was hasty. It was wrong. I shouldn't have had that attitude. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves, preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. All you who what? Hope in the Lord. Again, hope is about that future laid up thing. So I think this psalm gives us an, an example of this. The psalm's great to read through as a blueprint for praying through the hardships you're going through in your life. The future is better than the present. Here's this another example for us. Um, there's another scripture that I'll point out in Romans 8, 18, which says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now I want you to hear this, not as someone who's heard the Bible over and over again. I want you to ask, can you consider or believe the same thing that Paul is in Romans 8.18, that the sufferings of this present time, as bad as they are, there isn't even a comparison to the glory of what's coming. 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Do you consider this? And this is something you can talk about, pray about, affirm. I don't care if you feel it. I'm asking if you trust it. And that's a beautiful thing to be able to say, maybe I don't feel it, Lord, but I do trust it. And that is a huge help in those times. Some other uh, things I'll mention um, are um, noticing the stuff that helps and hurts. Um, In your life, just very practically, very pragmatically, notice the little things that lead or, or, you know, contribute to the depression or the little or the things that that maybe make it better. And so for me, when I was, I I don't have chronic indigestion anymore, but when I did, uh, it just went away somehow. (laughs) Thank God. Um, but when I did, I would notice that if I ate chili, it would make it worse. You know, I mean, I finally admitted it. Yeah, okay, some food is making it worse. You know, all these cheeseburgers aren't probably such a great idea to have all the time. Um, so in the same sense with depression, you may notice that um, taking a walk outside might just actually help you. Um, sitting with a cup of tea and reading a book might might really help you. you know, just think, try to find the things that, that assist you. This is just what wisdom, right? Um, but you might find that watching... You binge watch certain shows and you walk away feeling very anxious. Well, be aware of your humanity here and don't feed into the things that that hurt you, but feed into that which helps you. Certain music you might enjoy, but you find it has a negative impact on your soul or your anxiety or your depression. Be very self-aware of these things and, of course, try to stay away from that stuff. Uh, There's a lot more stuff to talk about. you know, when you when you even talk about your your sadness or your depression with other people, you could be reinforcing how you're going to view it. And so I would say, even when you tell others about it, you should follow that format of the Psalms to speak about the genuineness of the hardship, but then, but end with the trust in God and genuinely. Um, and that will, I think, aid you because, as uh, you know, how you speak affects the way you think. Also, and here's um, here's some tips that I like never hear people give nowadays, and I think they're really important. How do I put this? See the temptation in your depression. See the temptation. Now, I don't think being depressed is sin. I don't think that you're in sin if you're feeling depressed. Um, however, I think you are probably being tempted in association with the depression. What I mean by this, and I hope I hope I make this clear here, I hope it makes sense, is that you can feel depressed and then that can be utilized by your flesh or the enemy to try to increase your motivation to commit some kind of sin. And that is a huge issue. This is, in fact, where the battleground lies. Think about the book of Job, right? Job goes through great suffering. And the suffering he goes through is intended by Satan to get him to sin, right? Satan's goal wasn't cause Job to suffer. It was cause Job to sin by causing him to suffer. And so see in your temptation or see in your depression, see where the temptation is and think to yourself, I can't fix this thing. I may not be able to make it just go away. But I can walk in positive ways. I can live in faithful ways. I can put on the truth of scripture. I can walk through the Psalms in, in, the, in the way I pray and deal with this stuff. But also take that step of saying, I want to recognize where my depression makes me want to not be responsible, not fulfill my duties. I'm not going to fulfill my work duties, my marriage duties, my parenthood duties. I'm going to shirk on those responsibilities or I'm going to shirk on other responsibilities. Maybe I have in, in ministry or in, in my walk with God. And this is where I think the, the spiritual battleground of depression comes down real hard. Don't let it make you sin because 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? No temptations overtaken you except what's common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond 
what you are able, but with the temptation will provide you a way of escape that you may endure it. And you need to endure it. This is this is where the spiritual battle is. It's not this isn't fun news, but this is such wisdom. Find out where your depression tempts you to sin and let that be a serious battleground in your life to not let that happen. And then I have another one. And um there's not too much more. Well, I guess there's some more here to share with you. Whole different subject. Here's a really hard question, though, that I think you should ask yourself as you're feeling um, sadness, sorrow, depression. It's a tough question, but I think it's an important question. And I think nobody talks about it. And that is, ask yourself if your sin might be contributing to your depression. Now, this is already really, really slippery ground. Because some people will, will just they'll be irrational about this and they'll just think oh, everything everything I've ever done is, is coming down upon me God's judging me for what I've done and it's, and it's I don't want you to don't freak out I'm just please don't freak out like you've got to be calm about this you've got to be rational about this I just know this that in my own life sin does lead to sadness and that seems like a natural thing in fact I have some scripture I'll share with you that seems to support this so you don't think I'm making stuff up because I try to not make up too much stuff <laughs> All right, Psalm 31, verse 10. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails. And then he tells us why. Because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. And he's, I think he's speaking not about physical things. He's speaking about his, his, his sorrow and his sadness and the grief that's overcoming his life. It's why he says it's because of my iniquity. So at least in some cases, sometimes it, was his, it wasn't his sin at all. In some Psalms, it's totally just enemies coming against him. Sometimes he's like, it's my sin, man. This is my sin that caused this. Here's another one, Psalm 32. We'll read verses 3 through 5. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was in, turned into the drought of summer. He, he kept silent about what? His sin, right? Because in verse 3, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So my counsel to you is this. You have to stop and ask yourself the question, is my sin contributing to my depression? Is this sorrow meant to be showing me that something's wrong in my, in my obedience to Christ in my life? This is an important question to ask. And sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes the answer is yes. But look at what happens at the end of the same psalm where he's like, you know, I, I kept silent. I wouldn't confess. I wouldn't deal with my sin issues, God. But, but, but then I did. I opened my mouth and I'm forgiven. But look at the end of the psalm, verse 10 and 11. He says, many sorrows, sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And therefore, after saying, you know, hey, I was sorrowful because I was being wicked. And then he turns to trust in God and call out for his mercy. Then he says in verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Those who are right with God because of they've dealt with repentance and they've come to the cross with whatever issues are going on, they have an access to joy that is, um, that is there. It doesn't mean you never have other reasons to have sorrow, but it does mean that the sorrow of sin can be removed from your heart and life, and that is hugely important. Let me give you... Um, another scripture that supports this it's 2 Corinthians 7 this is like theology of depression we're doing right here and I'm hoping that it's it's. Um, I just hope it really helps you guys um, it helps me 2 Corinthians 7 9 says now I rejoice not that you were made sorry but that your sorrow led to repentance 
for you were made sorry in a godly manner for you might suffer that you might suffer loss from us in nothing for godly sorrow produces repentance and leads to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death so he, he's talking to the corinthians about his you know initial letter rebuking them and then he's like hey you know, I don't like that it made you sad, but I'm glad that the sorrow you, you experienced led you to a place of repentance. There's a chance that sometimes at least your sorrow or your sadness or your, your feeling down is just the result of living a lifestyle of sin. And it's a natural consequence of sin. Like he's, God says, there'll be no peace to the wicked. And you're feeling that lack of peace. Now, here's my caveat, because I don't want you to become paranoid nor do I want you to ignore your sin issues. And those are the two possible errors we can fall into, right? And this, it seems like a lot of us fall into either. I feel like I'm always in sin about everything, or I feel like I'm never in sin, even when people show it and show it to me and point it out. And most of us need to, you know, whatever we are, we need to move the other way a little bit to become more balanced. Um, but it should be obvious. This is, my, this is how I want to help you out. Your sin should be obvious. It's not like you go where's the sin in my life and I can't find it. I don't know what it is. It should be super obvious. Like as soon as you stop and reflect and you just ask God, Lord, search my heart, know me, oh God, you know, search my inner thoughts, like see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, like the scripture tells us. Um, when you pray this to God and you just, you know what the sin is, I don't know how else to put it. It should be very obvious to you. And if you look at your life and you go, Lord, I honestly don't know of any sin, then I want you to just trust that it's not there unless God reveals it to you. However, if it's an obvious thing and you have habitual laziness, habitual pride issues, unforgiveness, uncontrolled lust, you're a gossiper. That's a serious sin issue, by the way. Um, materialism has overtaken your life and you've, and you've obsessed about the fluff of things and not the substance of Christ. If these things are going on in your life, it's understandable that it leads to a place of sorrow and that should lead you to a place of repentance. Sometimes we feel down and we yield to sin to try to cope with how down we are. Yet the things we're using to cope, whether it's drinking or whether it's binging on whatever the content is that you're binging on or, you know, shirking responsibilities or just becoming super irate and easy, easily angered and you're getting in the flesh a lot. These are like your coping mechanisms, perhaps, for feeling down. And I would say this is like scratching an itch. It makes the itch worse, right? Sometimes you get a bug bite, you scratch it. Oh, it just got worse, so I want to scratch it more. Oh, it's worse, so I want to scratch it more. And that's kind of what sin does. You know, I feel down, so I sin to feel better, but I end up feeling worse. But it makes me just want to sin more. And then this cycle repeats. You know the story. You know what I'm talking about. So I'd say do what's healthy and right. Don't do what makes you feel better. Do what's healthy and right. And then hopefully you'll end up feeling better. A couple other tips. Hopefully this is wisdom for you. Um, I heard a long time ago, uh, a pastor I greatly respect who told me, um, when it comes to humans, faith is where well, humans are like trains. He said, humans are like trains and trains have like the, um, the engine car that's in the front of the train. And we have the caboose that's in the back of the train. And he says the engine car is like faith and the caboose is like feelings. And oftentimes what happens is just like with a train, when it turns a corner, the engine car turns the corner long before the caboose turns the corner. Sometimes there's hundreds of cars in a train, right? In the same sense, when the person chooses to trust God, even in the middle of trials, it is often a long time before that caboose turns the corner and they actually start feeling better as a result. 
Um, and that's something to keep in mind. It's not a quick fix. It's rather a choosing a faithful direction to follow Christ in. But I want to mention something else, and I think this is really important. Um, curing how you're feeling. This, this may feel like hard advice, but I think it's good advice. Curing how you're feeling, feeling better, is not the top priority when one is feeling depressed. If it is your top priority, if it's your highest priority, then your priorities are actually mixed up as far as Christianity is concerned. Because my top priority should be knowing and honoring God in my life, not feeling better. The minute feeling better becomes the highest priority, I start making weird choices, strange decisions. Because honoring God and glorifying him is no longer my chief concern. It's feeling better. So I'm, I make unbalanced or unwise choices. Jesus sometimes didn't feel very happy, it seems, in Scripture. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he, it's, it's, said, it's said of Christ that he had sorrow or grief more often than anybody else in the Gospel of John. Yet he had a joy that was set before him, so he endured the cross, despising the shame. So I have a joy that's set before me. That doesn't mean that in this moment right now I'm always going to feel great or that that's even the goal of things. Um, there's a couple of little things I'll share with you guys. I hope this stuff has been helpful. And then I'm going to go to your guys' questions. And one of the things I want to say is this, and this is something that's really been hugely helpful for me, even though sometimes the hard pills to swallow are the best pills to swallow, you know, and this is perhaps one of those as well. Um, this isn't a fluke. Um, this is part of God's plan for your sanctification. Uh, this is at least my opinion. I think that your struggles, emotional struggles, you know, life struggles, all this kind of stuff are all part of God's plan for your sanctification in Christ. And here's help that I, I realize a lot of this helps. Some of it will help a non-believer, some, some won't. Man, you really want the hope and help that there is in Christ, you need to come to Christ. So turn your heart to Christ, man, and please do. And experience the hope that um, transcends any experience you're going through. And that's really what you need in this life. Uh, but I'll say this, it's part of your, your, uh, your sanctification. Um, and we get this from a passage. Let's go to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And look at how this applies to perhaps your struggles with sorrow and depression. Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh. I'm, am I saying the thorn was depression? No, 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 no. Um, but the thorn, whatever this is he's experiencing, he learns a principle that applies to depression. And we'll get to the principle. So, um, he says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You don't know what this means until you experience total weakness in your life where you are simply relying on God. And you know what it means to rely on God when you don't have the resources and you don't have the security in and of yourself. You, don't ha you can't pull from your own resources and you're just relying on God. And you're like, Lord, it's got to be you because it can't be me here. And then you know what this means. God's grace is sufficient for us. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Whose weakness? Mine and yours. Your weakness is where God's strength is made perfect or complete. So Paul's response is, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions. And may I highlight one word here, in distress, distresses, in distresses, 
That is when you are stressed. That, that's what he's saying. When I am distressed, I take pleasure in it. Not because he enjoys like some, you know, I enjoy being pain, in pain or something, but rather because of the end of the verse here, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. When you're brought to nothing, it forces you to rely even more upon God's power and strength. And this is part of your, your sanctification and him being glorified in your life. And this to me is tremendously helpful when I might feel sadness, sorrow, anxiety, um, and, I'm, and I'm going, I know what to do. I know how to follow God in this scenario. I still don't feel any better, but I sure can rejoice in some sense that God's strength is being magnified in my weakness. So Lord, you're being glorified and any Christian is going to take some sense of pleasure out of God being glorified, I think. It's quite natural because you happen to love God. So yeah, you, you've still got a ministry, no matter what you've got going on in your life, um, there's still a ministry for you and the ministry is everything you do, whether it's your marriage, your friends, your free time in prayer, your um, your example of trusting in God in the middle of hardship, you, you know, your testimony of, of just being a Christian. There, there's a ministry for you, Colossians 4, 17, whatever you do, do it under the Lord. So even if you feel like you're disconnected, you're, you're, you're useless, you're pointless and all, that's just not true. And you need to trust in what scripture tells us, right? Colossians 4, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Live for him. Choose what you believe, even though you can't choose how you feel. Now, I'm sure there's a lot more great advice I haven't given. I just hope this some of this stuff helps you guys. And these are some tools that will benefit you. And I do apologize for microphone issues. We're, we're still, I spent like uh, several hours troubleshooting that issue this week. And um, apparently it's still something we're working on. All right. Um, your questions. Um, number one, a follower of Jesus has a question. Says, um, Mike, thank God for everything you helped me with. My question is, how do I live out Colossians 3.17? Is that actually, I think that's funny because I think I gave the wrong, yeah, I gave the wrong chapter reference. I said Colossians 4.17, that's wrong. So I'm so glad you asked the question to correct my, uh, my wrong chapter reference. Um, Colossians 3.17, I'll put it on your guys' screen. I just quoted it to you a moment ago. I know it. I know what it says, but not where it is, apparently. Um, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think that um, um, I think this kind of depends a little bit on what it is you're doing. And so let me try to think of some examples. Let's say you go to work. This is easy, right? You go to work and you're going to work as unto the Lord. Okay, so I'm going to show up on time. I'm going to do a really good job. Even if no one's watching, I'll have integrity and I'll work hard and I'll perform perform it even even better than I would normally because I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm, I'm doing this as though I'm employed by God, you know, or you're an employer and you treat you treat it as though you're employed on, be, on behalf of God. You're employing these people. So you, you honor them in great ways. Your marriage, you do that for the Lord. You walk, but let's take it to a slightly different um, example. You um, you're uh, you're walking on the beach. How do I do this? in the Lord? How do I do this? Do it in the name of the Lord? Okay. Well, I do think it can apply to this. And it's simply that I look at the beach and I, I enjoy the waves and I just recognize like, God, you get credit for that, Lord. I'm just grateful. It doesn't mean I have to stop and pray out loud every time I'm looking at the waves. There's just a, an awareness, a cognizance. I'm, I'm conscious of the idea that this is God's creation I'm enjoying. So I'm not ignorant of him and I can be doing it in his name. So really it's finding um, a way to say that I don't have ministry over here, life over here. No, no, I'm going to take my whole life. It's all ministry unto the Lord. I want it all to be ministry. 
even uh, for instance in your relaxing goofing off time you know I, I like what it says you know honor the lord and, and keep the sabbath holy the scripture says now we're not under the law but the principle keep it holy means like even in your chill time even in your relaxed time don't compromise into sin because that is often when it happens uh, so that's how you could even chill and have fun and relax under the lord by just keeping it pure um, okay next question um there it is from charlie 80 charlie g81 oh hold on Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. AJ, you got to stop sending them to me because it resets my um, my uh, messenger and then it moves away from where I'm reading. Okay, Charlie81 says, uh, can we go to outside sources for treatment or is the word of God sufficient to deliver us from mental illness? Um, I, I don't think that I would say the word of God sufficient to deliver you from mental illness. I, I do think it's sufficient to instruct you on how to honor God during mental illness. But that's not the same thing as deliver you from mental illness. There is, I don't, in principle, I see nothing wrong, in principle, nothing wrong with someone going and trying medication that might help them with mental illness, psych, uh, psychiatric help, or um, uh, uh, psychologist help either, whichever one it is, I, I'm completely okay with these things. And I think we do good to be okay with that. We realize this doesn't have to compete with scripture. This can just be, you know, one thing I didn't even mention today was finding a friend, a, a, preferably a godly friend, who you can just tell everything that's going on and get counsel from. I didn't even mention that. That's fantastic advice. We could spend a whole thing talking about it. But yes, um, those of you who go outside scripture to sources for maybe a, an individual who's been trained to help people, absolutely, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Now, it's possible... Oh, let me go back to my home screen. It's possible that the people you're getting help from, maybe they're not very good at helping. Or maybe they've been trained to think of you as a pure physical animistic being and as though you have no soul right you're just a brain it's it's all nature versus nurture there's no free will there's no decisions and there's no like god in the picture and that may not be the best counselor for you you could still probably learn from that person though that's it's not like everything they say would be wrong there's still probably gonna be some areas where they're gonna have some wisdom for you so may god give you wisdom and all those things uh i just keep it wide open um you know why not reach out for the help you whatever help you can get uh, including talking to um professional therapy that's fine i don't have a problem with that personally i um i would look at least initially for believers to speak with because i want them to have that that worldview scope where christ is part of it now they now if they're professionally trained in helping people deal with these problems even better <laughs> so yeah uh travis lee says how do you deal with intellectual doubt that can result from emotional depression oh that's um that's a great question travis um how do I deal with intellectual doubt that can result from emotional depression? I think part of it is just acknowledging what it is. Sometimes I can step back from myself well enough to recognize, oh, this is my doubt. This intellectual doubt I'm feeling isn't actually caused by the things I'm thinking of. Rather, I'm thinking these things because of something else, because of this sadness and sorrow I'm feeling. And, you know, here's some good advice, right? When you're feeling really down and depressed, it's not a good time to make any kind of major life decision. Or here's another good advice. When you're feeling super depressed and down, you're probably not going to be very good at apologetics. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? You're not going to be seeing clearly to think through things thoughtfully. You're going to be driven by the sorrow into what, whatever things you're afraid of, potentially. Um, yeah, so just by be able to step back and look at yourself and recognize this isn't really intellectual, this is emotional, and you can handle it differently because it's a different tool set 
to deal with emotional issues than intellectual ones. Um, rational evidence has a question. Do you agree with your with the statement that your emotions are not the truest part of you, rather what God thinks of you is the truest description of who you are, regardless of how you feel? Well, I don't know if I understand the statement. Um, let me rephrase the statement in a way I do agree with it, and I'll say it this way. Um, your emotions do not create truth about you, <laughs> about who you are, right? Who, the truth of who you are does not come from your emotions. Maybe I can put it that way. And obviously what God thinks of you is true. God is not in error. So if God thinks something of you and he's like, yes, you have immense value. I made you in my image. And you're like, I'm worth nothing. And you're like, well, it, maybe you still feel like you're worth nothing, but at least you know you're being dumb, right? At least you know you're wrong. That's a wonderful truth that I can trust God with and know I'm wrong. Um, if I feel like my life is worthless, um, I know that that's not true. And, and another thing that can help is sometimes you ask, you put yourself in someone else's shoes. You're like, if, if someone else was in my exact situation, what counsel would I give them? I would be like, come on, man, you, you shouldn't think that. You know that's not true. And sometimes that helps us snap out of it too. Um, from CDTV, hi, Mike. My wife is a doctor and I do not have a job. Is it okay to be the man of the house and be the stay-at-home spouse? Um, yes. I don't see a problem with that. Um, okay, Tobias said, and I'll just say this uh, before I get to Tobias's question. I don't know of any specific scripture that clearly teaches that. I realize that gender roles are very important in scripture, but I don't see a specific scripture that teaches the, that the, in every home, in every life situation, the, the husband has to be out of the home providing and the wife has to be in the home, uh, you know, taking care of the household. I, I don't, I don't see that. I think that's probably the normal way of things, but I don't think it has to be that way. And, and currently, you know, the way finances are, especially in like where I live, it's very difficult for anybody to have a, a, even one of the family members who stays at home because everyone has to work just because the cost of living is really high. I live in, you know, L.A. County. So um, Tobias Sedneff says when Romans 13, 8 says that he who loves another has fulfilled the law. What does this mean? Does it mean every single commandment uh, is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself? What does this mean for non-Christians who have a near biblical love for others? Um, good questions. Okay, so does it mean every single commandment is summed up and love your neighbor as yourself? Well, Jesus actually gave two commandments. He summed up the law with two commandments. One of them is love your neighbor as yourself. But the other one, the primary one, the even more important one was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the problem with Let's say that you're, you're not a believer, but you seem to be very loving towards your neighbor. I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to be like, no, they're not really loving. It's a trick. I'm just going to, okay, that's what it looks like. They seem to be very loving to their neighbor. But they're not loving towards God, which is the bigger issue. And so now if I love something else supremely, but God I do not love, that other thing I love is somewhat like an idol now. So instead of it being a positive thing and a wonderful thing, there's something tainted about how much I love other things when they're in the place of God. So yeah, the, Tobias, I would affirm the goodness of loving our neighbor and how this is the heart of the law, loving our neighbors ourselves. but there is a greater law above that, which is, of course, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the Ten Commandments echoes this when it starts with our attitudes towards God and then it ends with our attitude and treatment towards people. I hope that helps. That's a quick overview of some thoughts. Um, Let's see, uh, SFS Igmagai says, um, how does grief factor in with depression and does scripture address both equally or does it treat them separately? 
I think in modern terms, we think of depression as a prolonged state and grief as perhaps an immediate state um, that deals with sorrow over specific situations. I think that's kind of how we view it. I wonder if the if I look it up in the original languages, if, if, if it would support that kind of view. There's a proverb that says anxiety in the heart causes depression, and uh, but a good word makes it glad. Um, there's another scripture in the Proverbs that says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so that seems to be preferring, referring to that long-term effect. Like you keep having this hope that you're hoping and put off and put off and put off and it's making you really sorrowful. That seems to be like more of a long-term sorrow. So the scripture doesn't maybe make a clear dif differentiation between them, but it seems to acknowledge the existence of both of those things. Sudden onset of grief due to tragic circumstances as well as ongoing long-term grief. Uh, I'm probably didn't really help too much, but there's some thoughts. <laughs> Adam Horn says, I'm sure Mike hears it all the time, but I would appreciate it if you'd pass along. His ministry has blessed my life greatly. And I'm very thankful for the work God does through him. Uh, Adam, thank you for sharing that with me. Um, that is tremendously encouraging. And I am, uh, I mean, I'm just a guy trying to serve the Lord with his ministry. I'm just a normal guy like you, but it radically encourages me to hear the impact that the ministry has on other people. If y'all ever want to send me good feedback, I'm always happy to see it. <laughs> um, Let's see, Brittany Chicky says, are you not a strong enough Christian if you have depression? I've heard this from some friends in the past, not sure a better way to phrase this. Absolutely not, Brittany, and I'm so glad you asked this. I don't think that we should measure our spirituality by our lack of depression. Uh, no, not at all. In fact, um, Paul, Paul was a pretty spiritual guy, right? And he talked about how he was sorrowful and he even despaired of life, which seems to imply that he was like, I was just like wishing I could just move on out of this world. That seems to be what he's saying. Now, he handles it biblically, and you read on, he handles it biblically, but he was going through it. Jesus, in the book of John, he says that he's sorrowful, quote, even unto death. Jesus is sorrowful even unto death. Look, if Jesus can feel that way, it's not unspiritual. And so be encouraged, my friend. Be encouraged. Your, your goal is to go through it in a godly way. Don't condemn yourself for going through it. Yes, ask yourself if sin is contributing, but it's the sin that's the issue, not the depression. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, Texas Lioness says, do you believe depression can sometimes be from demonic possession? Do you believe it can be a generational curse in some cases? Um, I tend to not think anything's demonic oppression unless I have really good evidence to think it is demonic oppression. That's my general view. Um, I don't think that just, you know, boy, that person's really struggling. It's probably demonic. I think that might be a very unhealthy way to, to evaluate ourselves and the people around us. Uh, demons in the scripture, it seemed very manifest that there was a demon going on. Yeah, not like, oh, they're depressed, it's probably demonic. And certainly Jesus wasn't demonically possessed, and Paul wasn't, and they went through these things as well. Um, Elijah was a prophet of God who seems to clearly be going through serious depression, and there, there was no demonic possession in his case either. So I think we have good scripture to suggest that that's not the case. Um, generational curses, I don't really believe in generational curses, and I've never heard a good biblical case for it. Maybe I'm wrong. You guys can shoot me a link or something like that. I, I don't think that that's like a real thing. Um, yeah. Uh, number 11 here. Chris Edwards says, is it possible that some, not all, and certainly not medically treatable depression can be a result of God's chastening? Uh, yes, absolutely. It could be. And, and it is in the case of those Psalms that I read to us earlier. I think Psalm 30. Let me see. There's a couple specific ones I read. Um, when I was talking about it possibly being uh, sin-related, Psalm 31, verse 10, Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. Um, 
then there's uh, the rest of Psalm 32, verses 10 and 11. And I think that those things, yes, it can be a result of God's chastening. It is in the case of those Psalms. Um, Anna Boshir says, I had my first son out of wedlock, married his dad, repented of it as much as you can when you have a blessing out of it. Uh, do you think something hangs over my son like a spirit or is all that kind of stuff on Jesus at the cross? Thanks, Mike. Enjoyed your session on Remnant Radio. Oh, good. I think I'll actually put that video on my channel sometime later this week, a video on handling tough Bible passages and um, real tough Bible passages. And um, Anyway, I, uh, I do not think anything's hanging over your son, Anna. I don't think so in any way, shape, or form. And um, I can't think of any reason to think there is. Um, unless you have a really good reason to think there is, then you shouldn't because um, that is not a healthy way right, to even go through life. So yeah, I would say yeah, your uh, your your son is not ain't nothing. All right, Soledad Gloria says, uh, "What if in the midst of your depression you cannot bring yourself to do the things Mike's talking about?" I think it's an important question to ask too. Um, I honestly I don't want to overstep here. The only promise I have from Scripture for for a person in that scenario is the Bible tells us that we don't have to sin. It doesn't say you will be able to get out of bed or you will be able to go to work and perform all your functions. It doesn't say that, right? But it does say, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you won't have to sin in this scenario. So if you're in the depths of the lowest place of your depression, I would want to make one of your, your big agendas, just don't sin as a result of this thing. And I think that that'll be one of the things that will help somebody in that situation. Um, Emmy uh, Desirealt says... Uh, you talk Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 7. Um, and she quotes this, the passage where um, Elijah is told, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And then she says, I've suffered from anorexia since I'm 14. I'm 30 now. What is your take on anorexia? You know, I don't think I know enough about it, Emmy, to be able to give you really great advice um, on the topic. Uh, I, I mean, I could honestly, it, it would be like almost rude of me to just throw spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks on this topic of anorexia. I do think, um, you know, there's going to be biblical help for you and that you should look for the verses and passages that speak to those issues and seek to honor God and try to make your priority glorifying God in your situation and let that trump whatever other concerns you have, whatever other beliefs you have, let your, your, your faithfulness and love of God trump those things. But beyond that, I, I really counsel you to find a godly person to talk to about these issues. You may have already done this, but go down that path. I'm sorry I can't be of more help. I just don't know enough about the, the issue. Uh, Nikau says, does guilt and depression go hand in hand? And I think I answered that one. They can, but they aren't necessarily, right? You can be depressed without guilt. You can have guilt without being depressed even. But sometimes you have both. Miss T says, question, I have depression stemming from years of mental abuse from my ex. I've tried to put up boundaries with him, but he says that Christians don't do walls. How can I do boundaries biblically? Um, well, I'm going to say, Miss T, um, Christians absolutely do walls, you know, <laughs> to risk being political. Build that wall, Miss T. Absolutely. Um, you're okay. Look, let me, let me put it this way. And you guys, I'm coming at this with a lot of experience as a domestic violence counselor, meaning I've encountered couples and dealt with individuals on both sides, perpetrators of domestic violence, as well as victims of domestic violence. So I'm coming from that angle not only as a pastor, but as a domestic violence counselor, which I'm not currently doing. This is my full-time thing, the online ministry, but that was something I did for years. Sometimes, even though someone has stopped abusing you, they have not stopped manipulating you. 
and Miss T, it sounds like he might continue. I'm going to just venture a guess here. It sounds like he's continuing to manipulate you by trying to throw Christian principles at your face. Christian principles he's probably not obeying, but he wants you to obey. Except not building walls isn't exactly a Christian principle. I think that it's entirely healthy to separate yourself from those who are abusing you. Yep, you can turn the other cheek, but you don't have to stay in constant relationship with them. And I think that that is, um, I think there's some wisdom there for you. Yeah, if you have a continued cycle of manipulation going on between you and another person who has a history of abusing you, please separate yourself from that person. This is this is wisdom. Uh, yeah, and get counsel. And there's a, there's a whole lot more I could nuance this with. But in your exact situation, as I've read it here, that would be my advice to you. Build some walls. Build some walls. Think about uh, Joseph when he, even though he was restored to his brothers, in the end of Genesis, he not only was restored, but he also did something else. He tested them to make sure that they'd really changed. Read, read the passage in Genesis when Joseph gets restored to his brothers. He tests them to make sure that they've actually changed. And I think there's some wisdom in that. Yeah, just make sure it's not bitter. Make sure you're not bitter. You're just being wise. If it's wisdom, not bitterness, go for it. All right, Nyland, Nylady in Red. Nylady in Red has a question. I had two emotional breakdowns recently and something... So emotional and mentally jarring happened to me today. I really needed this from my heart. Thank you so much for this teaching. That blesses my heart to hear that. Oh, I pray that you have helpful tools in these things. I know I can't fix stuff, but maybe positive directions and help would be the encouragement for you. Um, Thank you for telling me. Uh, June Higgins says, um, Mike, you pointed out that sin could in fact cause suffering as shown in the Psalms. Why then were Job's friends rebuked for thinking that uh, this could be the case with Job? Oh, I think Job's friends, they didn't just think, hey, Job, you know, they didn't do what I just did, which is, hey, evaluate, Job. Ask yourself if this is caused by your sin. Rather, they just said, Job, you're a sinner. Like, this is totally your sin. We know it's your sin. And Job was like, no, I didn't do anything. And they're like, yeah, you did. You're so arrogant. And and he's like, no, I didn't do anything. And this goes on, you know, for 38 chapters of Job. Um, Yeah, so could be sin doesn't mean is sin. That would be the big difference. Um, and I care, last question for tonight. Um, how do I find strength in times of suffering? My trust in the Lord tends to decline. I'm an ex-Muslim, by the way. Um, I care. How do you find strength in times of suffering? I think that we have some sources of, of, of strength here that we've talked about. Like uh, one is prayer. Not a quick fix, right? But it's a direction, okay? Prayer with thankfulness. Make sure to be thankful in those times of prayer. Stop and be thankful. Even make a list of things to be grateful to God, like in Psalm 103. Um, You can now meditate on positive things, especially things related to future hope you have in Christ. Meditate on, consider those things. That's a source of strength. Knowing the character and goodness of God so that you can put your hope in him. In fact, you can command yourself to trust God. Even though you don't feel it, you can choose it. Thank God. I am not led by my feelings. Um, Although I'm influenced and affected by them, they don't don't dictate me. Um, So those are a few of the things you can do. I, I would recommend... Some of those, find strength. Ask yourself where you find your strength in the Lord. How you find your strength in the Lord. Um, yeah, there's some stuff there. Maybe p- other people would, would have some tips for you. You guys can, in the comments, put down your tips and advice. We just want to help each other with these issues because we will struggle with sorrow and sadness. And it's okay. But we want to have the help of God in those situations. So we'll see you guys um, later this week. I'll upload a video on the topic of um, those tough Bible questions. And that'll come up probably in a few days, maybe two days, probably Thursday. 
And um, next week I'm going to continue, probably continue, the uh, Penal Substitutionary Atonement series looking at New Testament texts on what it means that Jesus died for us on the cross and how the cross saves us. Real important stuff, real controversial stuff today. Shouldn't be, but it is. All right. Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and just show you the peace and the joy there is in Christ, even in the midst of the sorrow and the depression and the hardship that there is in life.